Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's early evening, the 7th of August, 1943, and Australian Coast Watcher Sub-Lieutenant Arthur Reginald Evans is having a cup of tea with US Navy Lieutenant John F. Kennedy on the tiny island of Gomu in the Solomon Islands. Together, they're planning the rescue of Kennedy's men, the 10 surviving crew of patrol boat 109, who are marooned on a nearby island and in danger of discovery by the Japanese. Reg Evans has been coordinating the search for PT-109 survivors since it sank five days ago, and he shows Jack Kennedy the decoded messages he's traded with his HQ in that period. With darkness settling over the Solomons, Reg tells Jack it'll be a simple matter for his Islander scouts to take him by canoe to the PT base at Rendover. But the young American won't hear of this. His sole concern is his men, and he wants to do everything in his power to ensure they're rescued. So Jack proposes that the scouts take him to rendezvous with the PT boats that Reg has already organised. From there, Jack will be able to guide them to exactly where his men are on the island. At 6.40pm, Reg radios HQ with the good news of Jack Kennedy's safe arrival on Gomu and he asks that they update PT Command on their plan. His message reads in part, quote, Lieutenant Kennedy considers it advisable that he pilot PT boat tonight. He will await boats near Patparan Island, PT boat to approach island from northwest 10pm as close as possible. Boat to fire four shots as recognition, he will acknowledge with same and go alongside in canoe. Jack's going to fire four shots in reply, but he only has three bullets left in his 38 revolver, having used the others when trying to signal PT boats in Ferguson Passage a few nights ago. 
So Ridge lends him a Japanese rifle, along with a pair of coveralls, and Jack promises to leave both in the canoe. Bidding his American visitor farewell, Ridge sees him off as the scouts paddle him into the darkness. Jack approaches the rescue boat, PT-157, hears the signal shots, fires his revolver three times and Reg's rifle once in reply, comes alongside and then boards. Then he guides the vessel to Olasana Island where, using rowboats, all of his men are rescued. With that, the 11 survivors of PT-109 are whisked to the safety of PT base at Rendover. As for Ridge, who's still behind enemy lines, when his scouts come back in the canoe, he finds that the young American has forgotten to leave the Japanese rifle behind. That's not a big deal, and he thinks no more of it, which is also true of his encounter with Jack Kennedy. But the events of the past week won't be forgotten by Jack, yet nor will he remember them correctly. While Jack's political future will, to a substantial degree, be built upon the legend of PT-109, for nearly two decades, his story won't include the name of Reg Evans. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the second and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode, The Aussie Who Saved JFK. When Jack Kennedy climbed aboard PT-157, he didn't just find the protection of his US Navy buddies. He also found himself in the company of two war correspondents, Leif Erikson of the Associated Press and Frank Hewlett of United Press. Less than a fortnight later, these men's stories about the heroic son of the former US ambassador to Britain were splashed across newspapers all over America. On the 19th of August, the Boston Evening Globe ran the AP story with an above-the-masthead front-page headline, quote, Kennedy's son, hero of PT Boat Saga. This came with a four-panel comic book-style illustration that told the epic story, from the PT-109's collision with the Japanese destroyer to Jack scratching out the message on that coconut. And the article was accompanied by a handsome photo of the young lieutenant in uniform. Inside the Boston Globe, there was close to a full page of coverage, including sidebars about Jack's academic and literary accomplishments and relieved commentary from his famous father about his son's salvation. The next day, the New York Times ran the same article on its front page, headlined, Kennedy's son is hero in Pacific as destroyer splits his boat. The AP article ran in dozens of newspapers. So did the UP story. In the Brooklyn Eagle, it got the headline, Coconut SOS saves Kennedy's son and 10 after Jap's ram PT boat. The UP article put Jack and his crew's survival down to the, quote, luck of the Irish and some first-class skill. As in the AP article, the UP article credited an unnamed Solomon Islander with carrying the coconut through enemy waters. But nowhere in any newspaper was reference made to the far longer and more detailed message that the PT-109's ensign Leonard Tom had written on a piece of paper which had been delivered to the PT base along with Jack's coconut. And neither of the articles mentioned an Australian Navy officer's coordination of the rescue from behind Japanese lines. Actually, that was as it should have been, because in late August 1943, secrecy had to be observed to help protect Reg Evans and other Coast Watchers. As these newspaper stories appeared stateside, Jack Kennedy was in a naval hospital, recuperating from the injuries he'd sustained during the PT-109 ordeal. 
He'd already hurt his back badly playing football in 1937 and the exertions of his lengthy swims had aggravated his condition. Jack refused to return to the US and, once recovered sufficiently, he took command of vessel PT-59 and had another death-defying adventure. But by mid-November, he was a physical wreck, plagued by back problems and tropical illnesses, and a month later, he was ordered to return to the United States. Jack arrived in San Francisco on the 7th of January, 1944, and went to Los Angeles the next day. Though it had now been exactly five months since he was rescued, the sinking of the PT-109 was again news after he resurrected the story in an interview with a journalist working for the North American Newspaper Alliance. Like the previous articles, this piece was syndicated. When it appeared in the Pittsburgh Press, the headline read, Lieutenant Kennedy saves his men as Japs cut PT boat in half. Here's how the article began, quote, this is the story of the 13 American men on PT boat 109 who got closer than any others to a Japanese destroyer and of the 11 who lived to tell about it. It is about the skipper hero, 26-year-old Lieutenant John F. Kennedy, son of Joseph P. Kennedy, former U.S. ambassador to Great Britain, now home on leave, who, though he saved three lives and swam for long hours in shark-infested waters to rescue his men, today says, None of that hero stuff about me. The real heroes are not the men who return, but those who stay out there like plenty of them do, two of my men included. Jack retold the story of the sinking, and the journalist asked him how it had felt at the moment of collision. He told her, quote, I can best compare it to the onrushing trains in the old-time movies. They seem to come right over you. Well, the feeling was the same, only the destroyer didn't come over us. It went right through us. Jack explained how he'd swum to the first small island with his men, then on to the larger one, where they met two natives who, he said, quote, helped us tirelessly. I scrawled a message on a coconut shell and had one of the natives take it by canoe to Rendover. Seven days after the ramming of our PT boat, we were rescued. The journalist also took time to speak to Mrs. McMahon, wife of the badly burned crew member whose life Jack had saved. Quote, with tears in her eyes and a shaky voice, she said, When my husband wrote home, he told me that Lieutenant Kennedy saved the lives of all the men and everybody at the base admired him greatly. The reporter said to Jack, quote, Then you are a hero. She described his reply. Lieutenant Kennedy looked reproachfully at me as he answered. The job of a PT boat officer is to take the men out there and just as important to bring them back. We took them out. We just had to get them back. This was noble and stirring stuff, though, like the AP and UP stories, it omitted Ensign Tom's lengthy note and made it all about Jack's heroism and the coconut. The omission of even an oblique reference to Reg Evans was still understandable to protect operational security, though by then New Georgia had been retaken from the Japanese. Yet there was another detail attached to the article that seems evidence that this was meant to be a puff piece, and this detail no doubt raised the eyebrows of selected readers in the FBI, US Naval Intelligence, and the Kennedy clan. And that was the byline. It read, by Inga Arvid. 
So this glowing testimonial to Jack's heroism had been written by his ex-girlfriend, who, as we heard in the first instalment of this episode, had wrongly been suspected by the FBI as having been a Nazi spy. The photo of Jack that accompanied the article, at least in the Pittsburgh press, was positively post-coital in its vibe, even though they were no longer romantically involved. Article by article, headline by headline, and photo by photo, Jack's war hero mythos was being created around PT-109. Inga Arvid's work was continued, at least indirectly, by her predecessor, Frances Ann Cannon, Jack's first true love and the woman that he'd wanted to marry. As we heard last time, after Frances dumped him, Jack, in April 1940, had stoically gone to her wedding to rising journalist John Hersey. Since then, John Hersey had made his reputation with war journalism, and in February 1944, Jack went to New York, where he caught up with John and Frances. Over drinks, he told them his PT-109 story. It couldn't have come as a total surprise when John Hersey asked if he might write an article about this for Life magazine. Jack agreed, but stipulated that other PT-109 crew members would also have to be interviewed. In the middle of the year, Jack had spinal surgery, and while he was recovering, he gave John Hersey a lengthy interview. As it transpired, Life magazine rejected the resulting article, possibly because it was too long and because it utilised the stylistic devices of fiction to create drama, excitement and suspense. But the New Yorker magazine accepted the piece and published it under the title Survival in its 17th of June 1944 issue. Survival is a journalistic classic as a pioneering piece of new journalism. Yet it also wasn't all true, even though it was the result not just of Kennedy's recollections, but those of his men. Ensign Tom's note, which they all knew about, was again left out of the story, with Jack and his coconut taking centre stage. And as for the Coast Watcher, well now he did make an appearance. John Hersey introduced him off-screen, as it were, quote, Kennedy and Ross were wakened early in the morning by a noise. They looked up and saw four husky natives. One walked up to them and said in an excellent English accent, I have a letter for you, sir. Kennedy tore the note open. It said, On His Majesty's service to the senior officer, Nauru Island. I have just learned of your presence on Nauru Island. I am in command of a New Zealand infantry patrol operating in conjunction with US Army troops on New Georgia. I strongly advise that you come with these natives to me. Meanwhile, I shall be in radio communication with your authorities at Rendover, and we can finalise plans to collect balance of your party. In John Hersey's version, this letter was signed, Lieutenant Wincote. John Hersey's other depiction of the Coast Watcher came at the moment when he met Jack on Gomu. Quote, At last they reached a censored place. Lieutenant Wincote came to the water's edge and said formally, How do you do, Lieutenant Wincote? Kennedy said, Hello, I'm Kennedy. Wincote said, Come up to my tent and have a cup of tea. So why and how did Australian Reg Evans become New Zealander Lieutenant Wincote? That's a mystery that can't be fully explained by any of the available evidence. That Jack showed or read John Hersey the note that Reg Evans had sent him seems certain. The wording in the New Yorker article is almost identical to Reg's 1943 letter as we heard it last time. 
Meanwhile, its inclusion in the New Yorker story shows that the censors were now comfortable with referring to Coast Watchers, at least in general terms. But John Hersey had added this. I am in command of a New Zealand infantry patrol operating in conjunction with US Army troops on New Georgia. And that sign-off, Lieutenant Wincote. Who came up with it? The journalist experimenting with form or the forgetful future president? If it was John Hersey, it's unclear why he felt the need to create a fictitious character. His article would have read just fine, or maybe even better in terms of intrigue, if, along the same lines as calling Gomu the censored place, he just referred to Reg as perhaps the Allied Coast Watcher. Making this Wincote a New Zealander had no counterintelligence value either because the Japanese knew that both Australians and Kiwis were acting as coast watchers. And anyway, by June 1944, their work was largely done in the Solomon Islands. So did Jack Kennedy make the mistake? In the excitement of his rescue, or shortly after, he actually did forget Reg's name. When he looked at the signature on the letter, which it has to be admitted was a bit of a scrawl, Jack read it as A. Reinaus, A. Period, capital R. H. I. N. A. U. S. rather than A. R. Evans. Had he also misremembered him as a New Zealander? That's possible, but as we'll see, either Jack or someone else in the Navy did know the Coast Watcher was Australian at least three years before it was officially revealed to the world. Though John Hersey's article valorised young Jack Kennedy as a hero, the New Yorker magazine was then, as now, targeted mostly at the American elite. It was hardly going to make him a household name the way that Life magazine would have if John Hersey had managed to get his article published there. Yet, there was no stopping Jack's powerful father, Joseph Kennedy. He pulled strings to have the article reprinted in a publication that was read in over 3 million households, Reader's Digest. The issue hit newsstands and letterboxes in August 1944, and for the next two decades, this condensed version of the PT-109 story would be central to Jack's political career. And it was a political career he had to have, because the same month the Reader's Digest article appeared, his older brother Joe, who'd been heralded by the Kennedy family since birth as the future president, was killed over the UK when his Navy bomber exploded on a secret mission. Now, it was up to Jack to reach the White House. In 1946, Jack Kennedy made his first tilt at political office, running for Congress in Boston's 11th District, which was the seat that his brother Joe had planned to make his own in that very same election. Jack used PT-109 in his campaign speeches, though he always emphasised the bravery of his men. With the war over, there was now no need for secrecy, so if that had been the reason that John Hersey's article had turned Reg Evans into Lieutenant Wincote, the record could now have been corrected. But it wasn't. Instead, the Wincote story became further entrenched during the 1946 campaign because Jack's father paid for 100,000 reprints of the Reader's Digest article to be posted to Massachusetts voters. On the 5th of November 1946, Jack won that congressional seat and he was on his way to the White House. 
In August 1943, when the foundations of Jack Kennedy's PT-109 legend were being shaped in American newspapers, Reg Evans was still going about his war work behind Japanese lines. But he was becoming increasingly angry that the Americans retaking the Solomon Islands didn't seem to care about keeping the islanders alive. As Munda fell and the Japanese evacuated troops via barges and tried to escape along the channel west of Kolombangara, Reg and his American offsider Frank Nash called in their observations only for disaster to ensue repeatedly. As Reg's boss, Commander Eric Felt, wrote in his 1946 book, The Coast Watchers, quote, The difficulty of finding hidden barges, the inadequacy of charts in spite of the best that could be done, and the inexperience of new pilots resulted in the strafing of many friendly villages. This had always been a problem throughout the southwest Pacific, but probably the natives of Kolombangara suffered the worst. New pilots arrived, convinced that the country on our side of the lines was friendly, and that on the other side, hostile. Yet in fact, the occupied country was friendly too, except for spots controlled by the enemy. To many, natives were just expendable, and not even human expendables. In spite of warnings and pleas, the friendly natives were so shot up that Evans' scouting organisation was seriously dislocated. Only the Coast Watchers knew how essential was native goodwill, how much success was due to native assistance, and what risks the natives had run. And only those who had worked with natives, apparently, would go to real trouble to protect them. When, in spite of every precaution, an area in which Evans' scouts were hidden was bombed by our own aircraft, Evans felt he could no longer ask the natives for their cooperation, and he asked to be recalled. He was relieved, and in a short time, the station was closed. Reg returned to Australia, and he made the Sydney Morning Herald in his own quiet way in February 1945, when a small notice announced he'd been awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, which his military record notes was for bravery in reconnaissance operations. It was around this time, the end of 1944, the start of 1945, that someone sent Reg a copy of that Reader's Digest issue that contained John Hersey's story. Reading it, Reg was intrigued to learn that the man he'd saved was the son of the former US ambassador to England, and he was mightily bemused that somehow he'd become Lieutenant Wincoat of New Zealand. Yet Reg didn't think it was worth trying to correct the record, and he wouldn't think much more about it at all until much later. Unlike a lot of servicemen after the war, settling down back home in Australia wasn't a priority for Reg Evans. And his wife Gertrude, who'd met him while she was working in the Solomon Islands, also had a taste for far-flung exotic locations. With Burns Philp no longer doing business in the Solomon Islands, Reg didn't have his old job to go back to. So he answered a recruiting advertisement for the British Colonial Service that was run in magazines for ex-servicemen. He and Gertrude hoped for a posting to Fiji or Malaya, but instead he was offered a Gold Coast job. That wasn't the beachy strip of Queensland. Gold Coast was Britain's West African colony that's now known as the independent nation of Ghana. Red signed on for two years with the British Civil Service's Department of Agriculture and he was going to be working as a produce inspector on cocoa plantations. In July 1947, he and Gertrude departed for England from Sydney aboard the steamer Asturias. From there, they sailed on to their new home in the Gold Coast capital of Accra. 
This posting might not have been behind Japanese lines during a world war, but it did put them on the sidelines of a historical battle and at the scene of another deadly betrayal of wartime allies. Reg and Gertrude had only been in Accra a short time when a Ghanaian leader led a boycott of imported European goods because they were too expensive for locals. In late February 1948, on the last day of what had been a successful month-long boycott resulting in reduced prices, Gold Coast men who'd served alongside the British during the war staged a peaceful protest march in Accra. Their goal was to present a petition to the governor asking that they be given the jobs, pensions, housing and other benefits they'd been promised for their war service. Instead, they were stopped by police and told to disperse. When they refused, the chief of the British colonial police grabbed a gun from one of his men and shot dead three of these unarmed ex-soldiers. This act of brutality sparked riots that resulted in European-owned stores being destroyed and a state of emergency being declared. A letter Gertrude wrote to her mother, an excerpt of which was paraphrased and quoted in the Adelaide Advertiser in April 1948, referred to these events from a white colonialist perspective, though it seems likely that Ridge's war experiences would have made him sympathetic to the Ghanaian ex-servicemen. The article read... The riots, which began in the middle of February and broke out again in the first week in March, were caused mainly by the high price of cloth for the robes worn by the natives, who boycotted the European stores and eventually, Gertrude's quote here, went mad and burned and looted all the European stores in Accra. She continued, quote, The loss of all the lovely materials and food, which is always a bit short, was colossal. It made me ache to think of all the carpets, refrigerators, motor cars and other things we in Australia had not seen since before the war being looted and destroyed. The army was called in and reinforcements flown from Nigeria and things eventually quietened down. Things quietened down in terms of violence but the brutal 1948 crackdown was a tipping point that inspired the resistance that resulted in Ghanaian independence in 1957. Although Reg had signed on for only two years, he and Gertrude lived in Ghana that whole time, with them moving between towns and plantations frequently. Initially, they endured a lot of hardships. Some foodstuffs were in short supply, and there was always the threat of diseases like malaria and yellow fever. But as the 1950s began, Gertrude reported that conditions were improving, particularly as drugs were developed to better prevent or treat tropical illnesses. Reg and Gertrude lived in comfortable, well-furnished and attractive homes that were provided by his employers. While he worked, she occupied herself with gardening and grew roses and other flowers from seeds that she imported from England and Australia. As a couple, they enjoyed golf, tennis, swimming and socialising with other expats, most of whom were British. Passenger lists found at Ancestry.com.au show that during the 1950s they regularly took advantage of the generous amounts of leave Reg was given to take holidays in London and in Australia. During this period, across the Atlantic from Accra in Washington DC, Jack Kennedy was rising through the political ranks. In 1952, he won a Senate seat and in 1956 came within a whisker of being Democratic contender Adlai Stevenson's vice presidential nominee. After that, Jack Kennedy was determined that he was going to run for the White House in 1960. 
1956, Jack was hot property. His book, Profiles in Courage, which was released that year and which recounted the achievements of eight US senators, became a bestseller and it had win him the Pulitzer Prize in 1957, even though it had much later be revealed that the book was largely authored by his speechwriter, Ted Sorensen. While Life magazine had in 1944 knocked back John Hersey's story about Jack Kennedy and PT 109, in March 1957, the magazine had Jack Kennedy's handsome photographic portrait on its cover, and inside it carried an article that he'd written about racial discrimination. March 1957 was the same month that Ghana achieved independence. And with British rule ended and the colonial service wound up, Ridge and Gertrude Evans returned to Sydney, where he got a job as an accountant for the organisation that ran the War Veterans Lottery. They bought land at Avalon on Sydney's northern beaches, and there they built a house, finally making a home for themselves in Australia just 17 years after they got married. In July 1957, American newspapers announced that Navy Log, an anthology TV show dramatising naval adventures, would kick off its second season with a special episode. Here's how the Miami Herald succinctly put it on the 21st of July. Quote, More national publicity, which will add to his chances for the Democratic presidential nomination in 1960, soon will be coming to Senator John F. Kennedy of Massachusetts. The television show Navy Log will reproduce some of Kennedy's PT boat adventures of World War II. Yet it wasn't just a case of the show's creator, Sam Gallou, deciding that he'd tell this story. Jack had to grant rights, which he did in a two-page contract. And when shooting began in August, he went to San Diego Bay Naval Base to act as a technical consultant, with a behind-the-scenes photograph showing the young senator chatting with actor John Bayer, who'd be playing him in front of the cameras. Returning to Washington, Jack reportedly said he was, quote, slightly embarrassed by the show's cheesy dialogue. He wasn't that embarrassed because he appeared in a television interview that accompanied that Navy Log episode when it was aired on the 17th of October, 1957. The show might have been a little clunky, you can judge for yourself because it's on YouTube, but Jack understood television better than any politician to that point. He knew that Navy Log was a way to reach a new audience of voters, voters who'd been young children during the war and who probably hadn't since read any of the PT-109 articles. Time magazine gave the Navy Log episode a good review and six weeks later it put Jack on its cover. What's striking about the Navy Log episode is the bit towards the end, where Jack is given Reg's letter by a Solomon Islander scout. His Majesty's service to the senior officer, Nauru Island. I've just learned of your presence on Nauru. I'm in command of a... Some Australian coast watcher. If you come with me, sir, I'll take your turn. We have a wall canoe. Notice how Jack's character doesn't quote the much-cited John Hersey version of the letter. And the Australian identity of the Coast Watcher is then reconfirmed by the narrator. Time, 7 August 1943. Place, heading for New Georgia. An Australian Coast Watcher and a radio. Duty, hide the white man from the Jap patrol. So maybe it was John Hersey who got it wrong all those years ago and Jack, as technical advisor, had finally had the chance to correct the error. Except, not quite. Here's the scene where Jack comes ashore on Gomu. How'd you do? Lieutenant Winker. I'm Kennedy. Won't you come up to my tent and have a cup of tea? Delighted, Lieutenant. 
Jack so prized his PT109 experience that he'd actually framed Reg Evans's letter. So even if he did think that the signature on the letter read A. Rhinehouse, why as technical advisor to the Navy log show didn't he have the script changed to reflect that belief? Maybe it was because he didn't want to majorly contradict the Reader's Digest piece that was still doing the rounds in his campaigns. Anyone who missed the original broadcast of the Navy Log episode had plenty of opportunities to catch it on repeats over the next two years. From January 1960, when Jack announced his run for the White House, there was increased interest again in the PT-109 event because it became a major part of the campaign run by his brother Bobby. One of the key bits of Kennedy merchandise were PT-109 shaped tie pins which the candidate would hand out to the faithful. Being a war hero was the perfect argument to use against those who criticised Jack as nothing more than a wealthy playboy. And though every detail of his life was examined in the pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, and dozens of other august newspapers and magazines, not one of them had identified the mysterious Lieutenant Wincoat, or even the contradiction between the Navy Log version of the story and the one that had been established by the New Yorker magazine all those years ago. Instead, it was left to a little independent magazine called Pacific Islands Monthly to do that job. PIM, as it was known, was based in Sydney and distributed across the South Pacific. And in its October 1960 issue, it posed this question in a headline. Who was the Kiwi who gave wartime aid to Kennedy? Clearly the editor hadn't seen the Navy Log episode, though tantalisingly the show was screened on Australian television in the late 1950s. Pim's editors were simply curious to know more about the PT-109 legend. Its article retold the story as it had been told by John Hersey and others. Then, quote, There has been speculation in New Zealand regarding the identity of Lieutenant Wincote, as the New Zealand Army has no record of the incident and cannot identify the officer. It is possible that the name is coded, and it is also possible that someone in the Solomons or some other ex-serviceman there might be able to shed some more light on the subject. The New Zealand soldier, whoever he was, may not have survived the war, Otherwise, it is almost certain that somebody would have heard from him with the name of Senator Kennedy so much to the fore at present. Commander Eric Feld of the Coast Watchers saw this article and wrote a letter to Pym, which it paraphrased in the next issue. Quote, Eric Felt says he has no record of that particular rescue because it was one of many, but by the time and place, he thinks the Coast Watcher would have been sub-lieutenant Reg Evans of the Australian Navy, who had withdrawn from Columbangara about that time. The article continued with a quote from Felt, Perhaps Reg Evans can settle the problem, if anyone knows where he is. This was the first time that Reg Evans' name had been published in connection with the rescue of the man who was about to become President of the United States. In late November 1960, the phone rang in the PIM office. A mysterious voice said, quote, That story you have in the October issue about Kennedy and the Lieutenant Wincoat who was supposed to have rescued him? I can give you some more details about that. The PIM staffer asked the voice if he'd read the follow-up details provided by Eric Felt. The man on the phone said no, he hadn't. So the staffer read the piece down the line, and when he got to the bit where Commander Felt named the man he thought had rescued Kennedy, the voice interrupted and said, quote, That's me, 
I'm Reg Evans. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Frustratingly for Pim, Reg had waited 17 years to tell his story, so he just promised to come into the office in a few weeks' time. Pim reported to its readers in December 1960 that it had made contact with Reg and said it hoped to have his full story in the January 1961 issue. Before Reg came to see Pim, he attended the annual dinner of the Nidites in Sydney on the 25th of November. Nidites were what former wartime members of the Naval Intelligence Division apparently called themselves. That night, Reg told his old comrades his story, and one of these Navy men passed it on to the Melbourne Age columnist Alan Nichols. Four days later, on the 29th of November, he wrote in the Age that an old officer named Reg Evans had told an interesting story at the dinner. Quote, One night in the Solomons, there was a mix-up between Japanese and American naval forces, and an American PT boat was rammed and sliced in half by a Japanese destroyer. Among the survivors was the PT's commander, who was picked up and hidden by natives and eventually delivered to Evans concealed under gear in the bottom of a canoe. He was a nice guy, this commander, said Evans, and very glad to see a white face. He was US Navy Lieutenant Kennedy, now President-elect of the United States. Oddly, this little story wasn't headlined, say, the Aussie who saved JFK, but instead was simply headlined, Nidites. Even stranger was that no one at the age followed up and tried to find Reg Evans to confirm his story. If they had, they would have had a world exclusive. Reg Evans finally wandered into Pym's Sydney offices just before Christmas. He was 55 years old now, a trim, older gent, well-dressed in his suit and tie. Reg told his story and proved every word was true by producing logbooks in which he'd recorded every message he'd sent and received from Columbangara and Gomu about the PT-109 boat and its skipper. The magazine's photographer took a snap of him, peering down at this book through his glasses. The story, over three pages, made the January 1961 issue under the headline US's 35th President by courtesy of Ferdinand, which was referenced to the codename for the coast-watching operation. As for the other name, Wincoat, Reg was gracious. From Pym, quote, He didn't feel there was any point in correcting the error. It seemed likely that in the stress of the circumstances, Kennedy might quite easily have forgotten his name, and there was no telling why the author of the article had settled for Wincote. As for the business of being a New Zealander, few Americans at that time knew the difference between New Zealand and Australia anyhow, and New Zealand units did begin to operate in the Solomons about a month after Kennedy was rescued. While Pym had gotten the story first, it was beaten to print by Sydney's The Daily Telegraph, whose columnist Ray Castle had gotten wind of the yarn and found Reg for an interview. His article, published in December, quoted Reg as saying, On a small island in Blackett Strait, I heard that PT Boat 109 had been in strife. Later, I received a signal from my HQ that 11 survivors were on the island three or four miles away. 
This quote is strange and it's at odds with what happened, so it's likely that someone in the Daily Telegraph's editorial team mucked up and had Reg receiving rather than sending this signal. Reg's Daily Telegraph interview quote continued, My first job was to get the CO out. I sent three or four natives over in a canoe with a note. They came back in broad daylight. For a while, I thought they had no one with them. Kennedy was keeping out of sight, lying on the bottom of the canoe covered by old coconut leaves. He was certainly a nice guy. The first thing he thought about was the crew. A Japanese destroyer had sliced through their boat. The article detailed the rescue and concluded with Reg saying, quote, To me, it was just another incident, this Kennedy. But he was the only person I rescued up there. That's why I remembered it so well. Reg also told Ray Castle that he'd like to meet Jack if the US president should ever get down under. Pym's editor was furious, not just at being scooped, but by the Daily Telegraph's claim it had been the one to first identify Reg Evans. But those are the perils of publishing monthly. On the other side of the world, the Daily Telegraph piece was reported by the North American Newspaper Alliance, with the Boston Globe running this syndicated story on the 3rd of January 1961. Seventeen days later, John Fitzgerald Kennedy was inaugurated as the 35th President of the United States of America. One of his first acts as Commander-in-Chief was to wave to the surviving crew members of PT-109 as they trundled past on a patrol boat as part of his inauguration parade. Among the congratulatory messages and gifts that the new President received that day were roses and a card offering every good wish that had been sent by Mr. and Mrs. A.R. Evans of Sydney, Australia. Ray Lahr, an enterprising reporter for United Press, got wind of this and sent a note to Pierre Salinger, the new president's press secretary. The reporter's query can be seen in the JFK Presidential Archive, and it reads, quote, Pierre, it seems that A.R. Evans of Sydney, Australia, sent roses to the President and Mrs. K on Inauguration Day. Can we find out if the President or anyone at the White House knew then that the flowers came from the South Pacific Rescuer? Someone at the White House called the florist Jan 21 to ask if the address were known. Indeed, the White House had called the florist to get the Evans's address in Australia. Jack Kennedy had a million things to do now that he was in the White House, but confirming Reg's story was important to him because of the place that the PT-109 held in his heart and the role it had played in getting him where he was. But he also had to be sure that this Reg Evans on the other side of the world wasn't some sort of crackpot. So he got a handwriting expert to look at his framed letter, and this graphologist confirmed that yes, the signature actually read A.R. Evans. On the 25th of February 1961, Pierre Salinger announced that the White House had officially confirmed the identity of the President's wartime rescuer as Reg Evans. The press secretary explained that the confusion had come about because the signature was so hard to read and then had been compounded because John Hersey had used Wincoat, which had been Reg's wartime name. The latter, of course, wasn't true, but the former was fair enough. Back in Sydney, speaking to Pym, Reg joked that he was depressed to learn just how illegible his signature was. Quote, He reckons that next time he writes to any Navy lieutenant, he's going to sign it with a thumbprint and a cross. According to a later account by Pierre Salinger, Jack Kennedy was delighted at learning Reg's identity, and he immediately asked, how do we get him over here? 
This sentiment was repeated when PIM's editor bundled up all of its articles and other newspaper clippings and sent them off to the White House. Quote, We didn't really expect them to get past the first waste paper basket in the seventh anteroom. But in March, the magazine received a charming letter from Pierre Salinger thanking them for the materials and saying that if Reg ever got to America, the White House welcome mat would be out for him. As it turned out, it'd be another editor, Bob Curran of American men's magazine Cavalier, who'd make that happen. Bob had seen the Boston Globe piece about Reg and he put out feelers to find him in Sydney. Then he drummed up interest from sponsors, including primetime TV shows, and set the wheels in motion to bring the Aussie to America. For his trouble, Bob Curran got a Cavalier cover story which was told in Reg's own words. This article, which has provided many of the quotes for this episode, portrayed Reg as a no-nonsense, reluctant hero. Asked why he hadn't spoken up before, Reg said, quote, I could have bought in long ago, but why? It was no glory and halo stunt, it was just a routine job. When Reg arrived in the US at the end of April, he found he was something of a celebrity. One of these men has come 10,000 miles to meet a famous person he rescued almost 18 years ago. Before his White House visit, he shot an episode of Merv Griffin's TV game show to tell the truth. My name is Reg Evans. In this, Reg and two imposters calling themselves Reg Evans were asked questions about the PT-109 events by stars who couldn't see them, including... Don Amici and Betty White. It was an entertaining segment. Uh, Mr Evans, how many men were with him? I'm sorry. Number one, how many men were with him? President How many men were? We're with I understand there were 11. And Reg was pretty good at being himself. Reg was also a guest on Jack Parr's high-rating nighttime talk show. These two programs aired on the 1st of May 1961, the night before Reg Evans was ushered into the White House to meet Jack Kennedy. Cavalier's Bob Curran accompanied him and together they presented the president with a painting depicting the moment he came out of that canoe on Gomu and was greeted by Reg. There's about a minute of silent footage of this meeting on YouTube, though their reunion lasted for nearly half an hour. No transcript exists, but an AAP report said Reg was, quote, ushered into the president's White House study with the formality usually reserved for statesmen. His hand outstretched, Jack strode forward from behind his desk and said, quote, I'm extremely glad to see you today. The president also said, quote, I'm very grateful for what you did. And deploying typical Kennedy humor, he apologized for not leaving that Japanese rifle in the canoe as promised. The president showed Reg his now framed letter and the AAP reported, quote, Mr. Evans yesterday read with emotion that letter which lies framed on the desk of the man who today holds the most powerful office in the world. In late 1961, Robert J. Donovan published his book PT-109, John F. Kennedy in World War II. Starting his research, the author's first port of call was Sydney, where he interviewed Reg Evans, whose recollections and logbook provided the chronology for the rescue. The book was a bestseller and serialised in the Saturday Evening Post, returning the PT-109 story to the spotlight yet again, though this time the names of the Solomon Islanders who'd helped save the future president were also included. 
1962, Jack Parr, the US television host, paid for himself, Reg and a small crew to go to the Solomon Islands to visit and film the important sites from the story. The voyage gave Reg the chance to reunite with his scouts and to take photographs that were then published in Pacific Islands Monthly. Jack Kennedy had invited Benjamin Kivu, the senior Solomon Islander scout, to the White House and with Reg and Jack Parr accompanying him to the United States, he made this trip in September 1962. Meeting the President, Benjamin Kivu said, quote, I recognised him. He hasn't changed much. As a bestseller about the young sitting president's heroics, Robert Donovan's book PT-109 was of course prime material for a movie adaptation, and Jack's ever-ambitious father, Joseph, himself a former movie mogul of the 1920s, shepherded a deal to make a widescreen colour epic at Warner Brothers. Jack had some input into the production, including selecting actor Cliff Robertson as himself, and the film version had a role for Australian-born actor Michael Pate as coast watcher Reg Evans. The movie version of PT-109 was scheduled for release in Australia in late July 1963. Sadly, Reg's wife Gertrude didn't live to see him celebrated on the big screen. She died one month before the film premiered locally. Gertrude's death notice in the Sydney Morning Herald read, Evans Gertrude Slaney, June 24, 1963, of Daly Street, Avalon Plateau, beloved wife of Reg, loved sister of Cynthia and Kay Slaney Poole. There was no mention of children, and no children's names appear on any of the passenger lists I found at ancestry.com.au. Almost five months to the day after Gertrude died. Here's a uh, piece of copy that was rushed uh, to me and was torn off from the United Press in Dallas. President Kennedy has been shot in Dallas, has been shot in Dallas, Texas. He was shot as a motorcade left downtown Dallas. As you'll remember from the Zapruder footage, the first bullet hits him and he doesn't slump or duck. That's because he couldn't due to the back brace he had to wear as a result of the back injury he'd sustained playing football and that had been aggravated by the PT-109 ordeal. Unable to duck or move, the next bullet hit Jack Kennedy in the head and killed him. I haven't found any comment made by Reg Evans about this tragedy in the ensuing tsunami of newspaper coverage. I think it's safe to say he was probably saddened and shocked by the violent death of the young man he'd saved in 1943 and who he'd next encountered 17 years later as President of the United States. When JFK was buried, his brother Bobby put three things into his coffin. A lock of his own hair, an engraved rosary and his own PT-109 tie-pin. Reg's letter and Jack's coconut, which was retrieved and encased in plastic, were put on display in the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library, holding pride of place in an office set up exactly as it was during his time in office. Reg Evans' story was for a time well-known in Australia and in America, back when the PT-109 movie was regularly shown on network television. It was also revisited in 1977 by Walter Lord, author of the Titanic tome A Night to Remember, when he wrote Lonely Vigil, a book about the Coast Watchers for which he travelled to Australia in 1973 and interviewed Reg. 
I haven't been able to find out much about Reg's later life other than the fact that he remarried a woman named Fran who predeceased him and that he was something of a father figure or grandfather figure to his second wife's children or grandchildren. Arthur Reginald Evans died on the 31st of January 1989 at the age of 84. The Sydney Morning Herald didn't run an obituary. There was simply a death notice in the classifieds. It read, Evans, Arthur Reginald, January 31, 1989, late of Avalon, loving husband of Fran, deceased, much-loved pop of Maggie, Reg and Steve. And I really like how this little notice concluded. Quote, a passing of a true Australian. In 1993, in New York State's The Buffalo News, Bob Curran, former Cavalier editor, wrote of his disgust that Reg had again been rewritten out of history, this time omitted in a TV documentary called JFK Reckless Youth. In the article, Bob Curran also raised questions which are peppered throughout JFK biographies as to whether Jack's negligence caused or at least contributed to the sinking of PT-109 and the deaths of two of his men. There are arguments for and against this. Overall, I favour against, though it is murky and has huge implications if Jack was even slightly at fault. The reason I've stayed away from this is that this episode is ultimately about what Reg Evans and Jack Kennedy did after PT-109 sank, rather than what happened before. Yet Bob Curran was undeniably right when he wrote in the Buffalo News, quote, As different paste and clip jobs are done on the Kennedys, the PT-109 myth grows, and too often Reg Evans is sent back to the oblivion he occupied till that night of the Australian Navy reunion. Shouldn't happen. It shouldn't, but the thing is, though I saw the 1963 movie PT-109 as a kid, I too had completely forgotten about Reg Evans' involvement. That was until January this year when I received an email from a listener named Tony Fairburn. Tony had read Patrick Lindsay's 2010 book, The Coast Watchers, The Men Behind Enemy Lines Who Saved the Pacific, which includes a short chapter about Reg Evans' activities in 1943. With permission from Patrick Lindsay to use some material from his book, Tony had written a podcast script about the Coast Watchers that she intended to record and release. When circumstances prevented her from doing this, Tony very kindly emailed me and offered me the script on the proviso I acknowledged her and Patrick. I replied by saying that I was keen to take a look, but that Forgotten Australia episodes are usually through the prism of an individual rather than more general in their historical approach. Tony's script was terrific, but for this reason, it didn't fit. Yet two sentences in the script made my jaw drop. Quote, Coast Watchers were instrumental in ensuring that the future 35th President of the United States, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, reached home safely. He was rescued by Reg Evans in 1943. Emailing Tony immediately, I told her I'd love to pursue this and she gave me her blessing. From there, I went down the rabbit holes, newspapers, journals, magazines, books, YouTube, the Kennedy Archive, and so on, to bring you what I think is so far the most comprehensive account of Reg Evans' life and how his actions led to a sliding doors moment in history that literally shaped our world. So, thanks to Tony and to her inspiration, Patrick Lindsay. 
I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you want to see photos, articles, and videos of Reg Evans and Jack Kennedy, head to the website ForgottenAustralia.com and the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could take a moment to leave a rating and review at whichever podcast platform you use, and be sure to subscribe so you get every episode pronto. Forgotten Australia was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening and take care of yourself. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.